Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to Mind Hostage, a show where real people discuss real issues of overcoming negativity and a negative mindset. I'm your host, Stephen Payne, and I'm glad to be here with you today. Today's episode is brought to you by CBD 911, distributors of one of the purest CBDs on the planet. Don't trust your health to inferior CBD products with fillers and pesticides. Look up to CBD experts. You can email with questions at mycbd911 at gmail.com or shop on their website at www.mycbd911.com. Also, see our sponsors, Four Legs of Love Boarding and Boutique if you're in Central Texas area. They take wonderful care of your pets and offer full spa treatments and pet CBD. You can look them up on gopetlove.com. With as little as $5 a month, you can help us to continue to bring this program to folks who are struggling through adversity. You can look us up on www.mindhostage.com and click on the Patreon icon. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in, Mind Hostage fans. I am excited to welcome our guest, Dr. Tanya Glenn, today. Tanya, I can't tell you how excited I am to have you on the show. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here, and I'm so excited to be on and to talk to you about all the things we do and all the work we do in healing the mind. Well, I can tell you something. You know, we, we haven't met formally in person but um, I just want to share with my fans that the first major impression I got with our discussion over the telephone was how amazed I was at the pure passion in your voice and your conversation behind what you do to help our first responders and military and, and folks that are in, in need of healing. Well, thank you. I always say that I have the best patient population in the world. I mean, really, you can't beat it. You know, the honor of helping the helpers is the most incredible job I could ever ask for. And it's, uh, to me, it's not really a job. It's a, it's a passion. Well, if you don't mind, you know, sharing with our, with our listeners and fans, just kind of go back a little bit, um, when you got started and, and kind of what developed the passion to help folks like you do. You know, it started, I was, um, actually about three months away for finishing my master's degree at the university of Texas. And I, I just didn't know what kind of therapist I wanted to be. You know, nothing really appealed to me in terms of what they were offering us. And and I just, like, nothing was sticking. And I went home on a Sunday afternoon, and I turned on the news. And I proceeded to watch the, uh, the ATF raid on the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, well, outside of Waco. And I knew that day that my calling was to work with law enforcement, fire and EMS, and go to high-velocity events like that and to go help the helpers. Um, so it was just immediate. Like I, I knew that day. So I went to school the next day and I informed my professors that I was going to work with high velocity events and police fire EMS. And they told me I was crazy. So here <laughs> I am <laughs> 27 years later, still as crazy as ever. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, I can tell you something else that I, I noticed and kind of doing a little bit of, of uh, research and background on you is um, everywhere I look, I see you not only talking to talk, but walking the walk. I've seen photos of you with you know, firefighters and out with calls and uh, with EMS crews and, and with law enforcement. I see pictures of you hanging out with you know, kind of aviation folks and jets and helicopters. And tell me about that. 
You know, I, I knew right away that the way into the hearts and minds of first responders was to go out and ride along. And I, you know, for the first 10 years of my career, I was working at a level two trauma center here in Austin. And, and I did a weekend night shift. That was my shift. And during the week, I had my little practice that I was growing on the side with first responders. So every Thursday night to flip my schedule back to night shift, I would go ride. And the incredible rapport and credibility that you gain from doing that is phenomenal. And really to do what I do and to be at a practice like mine, you have to you have to have ridden out. You have to understand the terminology. You have to understand that, you know, hours of boredom followed by moments of just sheer terror that that is the typical first responder, you know, sort of, of shift work. And it's just so important, you know, meeting people where they are and and the ability to connect with them where they are is huge because, you know, most first responders don't want to come to therapy. But when they've seen you ride along, they're more likely to make that call. No, absolutely. adds credibility. I can tell you, you know, having spent, you know, over 30 years in the industry that it's a tough crowd. And uh, that's one surefire way to connect with these folks is to actually, you know, be a part of of what they do. And, and you know, they know you get a, a, a deeper understanding of kind of where they're coming from. So I applaud you for that. Thank you. I And I do love it. I mean, who doesn't want to climb ladders in Quince? And <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I just love it. I'm looking at your profile picture now. Yeah. And you're way up on top of that, that ladder. So uh-huh. apparently you didn't go into it with a fear of heights. Well, you know, they told me, don't look down. Whatever you do, don't look down. So I followed those instructions. <laughs> I never looked down. <laughs> nice. Well, you know, ha- having spent as many years in the industry as I have, and, and I can tell you both from a, you know, a caregiver standpoint and, and a manager standpoint, I've, I've done it wrong. And I maybe didn't recognize some of the symptoms I had f- from some of the, the injuries that I had incurred over the years. And, and again, as a manager, Although I was dealing with a lot of kind of human resource issues with folks that were going through, you know, a, a lot at the time, it was just kind of an unspoken thing that people in this arena and police, fire, and EMS just were, were certain personality types, and all of our lives were fouled up. And so, you know, the biggest thing that I found over the years is working to break the stigma. Do you find that to be a still a major issue? That has been the challenge in my entire 27-year career so far is is the stigma. The culture, you know, when I first started, um, the culture was very much suck it up and don't talk about it. And and people would really only come in when they were broken, like completely broken, usually backed into a corner in trouble, you know, on a and some sort of, you know, PIP or some some sort of, you know, disciplinary action. That That was the majority of my patients in the first several years. And I think most most recently, there's been a lot more awareness of trauma and stress and PTSD, but still a lot of fear. And the problem is, is that some some departments and some leadership are still punishing their folks for getting help. Um, that's actually why I created the documentary, which is uh, called First Responder Resilience, Smashing the Stigma. It's actually loaded on the website, smashingthestigma.com. And I wanted to just feature how proactive and productive it can be when first responders get help. But you have to have the leadership behind that because, you know, this documentary features seven people who walked through hell and back and um, and they never were punished and they were really encouraged to get help and they never lost their job and they were never taken off the line. Um, But that that has to be a cultural issue within each department. 
as we push for widespread cultural issue, um, you know, sort of tempo in, in all of police, fire, EMS. We really want it to become the norm versus the exception. Yeah, for sure. You know, I've seen so many people who were, were just very compassionate caregivers and were really good at their job, yet their career was cut short either because they didn't reach out for help or, um, you know, perhaps back at that time, you know, they, they did reach out for help or show the symptoms and they were labeled, you know, maybe weak or something. And I've seen way too many careers cut short because of this stigma. Isn't that amazing? You you have these stellar performers who are so skilled and, you know, especially, you know, with medical providers and, and even, you know, law enforcement, fire, you see these incredibly talented, compassionate people who are dealing with the public and dealing with the public on the worst days of their lives, yet somehow they're supposed to go into that situation and be completely immune. What I always tell people is, you know, behind behind every vest and behind every uniform is a heart and a mind, just like the rest of us. You know, these people aren't robots and they're not sociopaths. So they're gonna they're gonna at some point be impacted, and that's called normal. It's amazing how you you know you can train someone and you can provide them with a bunch of resilience tools and you can you know get them gradually desensitized to a lot of things but everybody has their limit and you know your limit whatever point that is if something is pushed past your limit you're going to have a reaction and and to me that's completely normal i think in in the culture for a long time it's been oh that's bad you shouldn't have that and and i i just think that's ridiculous well, you know, I've seen folks over the years, and I knew there there was something going on, and I knew they were good people, but, you know, maybe they didn't know they were going through a hard time, and, you know, a lot of folks would just label them as burned out or, you know, just crotchety or, you know, just hard to get along with, yet, you know, there was a deeper underlying issue, um, which kind of brings me to maybe what are some of the signs and symptoms that folks can look out for if they're not sure they're in trouble? Absolutely. You know, what I tell folks all the time is, um, so we're, we have two things I want to tackle. The first is resilience and in terms of burnout. And then the second is post-traumatic stress disorder. So burnout, basically, it's that's a tricky one. It's a slow simmer to a boil. And boy, it just wreaks havoc on people's lives. And you, you really don't see it coming. The, the biggest thing about burnout is that we are continuously exposing our first responders to human pain and suffering and criminal activity and violence and, you know, awful things happening to children and the innocent. And, you know, they, they, like I said before, walk into the worst days of people's lives. And over time, what happens is people lose their balance. When you take those bad calls and you, you add on the shift work and the holidays and the weekends and the fact that first responders tend to want to, and rightfully so, circle the wagons and just kind of hang out with like-minded they can never really get away from work. And what I always tell first responders is when you see people on the worst days of their lives, you forget about all the happy, healthy people who don't need you. And we drive code three right past their houses and it's hundreds or even thousands of people who are just saying, well, prayer for you, hoping you're okay and safe, but they don't need you. And so we don't interact with them. And over time, we tend to get like a really skewed perspective. Like a lot of times what I hear is everybody's a scumbag except for police, fire, EMS. And what I remind people is that's simply not true because there's a lot of good people who just don't need you. And, you know, and I think sometimes the media does does a little bit of damage. It makes um, the public really 
misunderstand first responders. So they're even afraid to approach them in their grocery store or, you know, or in a parking lot to say thank you. It's just, it's a very, very tough time. The further first responders get alienated and isolated from the general public and the happy, healthy people who really appreciate them, the, the more they get that skewed perspective that life is bad and people are bad. So what we do for the burnout is we really work on restoring resilience, which is your life outside the job. It starts with hydration, nutrition, rest, and exercise. And then we get into your family, your faith, your friends, your hobbies, your life outside the job, and really kind of reconnecting with those old friends that you haven't talked to in a while. And, you know, I always say you train those old friends not to ask you what's the worst thing you've ever seen or, you know, anything like that, because you don't want to go there with those friends. You need a break from that. And so we're giving first responders permission to have a life outside the job, which is going to be the biggest combatant for burnout. Then there's post-traumatic stress disorder. So what I teach all of my customers and I teach my peer support teams to, to interact with everybody at that line level is that when you go through a bad call, you are going to, you're going to replay it over and over again. You know, it's like a video in your mind, what you saw, heard, tasted, touched, and smelled. And for the first few days, that's really normal. And what we're looking for is by the end of seven days post-incident, we want that call starting to fade. And at 14 days post-incident, we want that thing banked in your long-term memory. In other words, you might never forget it, but you don't see it, hear it, smell it like you did on days one, two, and three. Ideally, the nightmares have stopped as well. And I tell folks, if at two weeks, it, you're still replaying it, it's, it's triggering you, it's this pervasive movie in your mind, and you're having nightmares, get help. Because at that point, it's all prevention. We have PTSD figured out so well that what we're finding is that when we intervene quickly, we can actually mitigate it. If it pushes on to PTSD, you'll know you have it because you're, you're completely constantly triggered all the time. That when, the, when people have full-blown PTSD, what happens is it realigns the limbic system and things start to misfire. So your amygdala caveman tells you to fight and run all the time. And it's based on a, a, a smell or a sound or something that's seemingly innocuous will trigger you into into motion and people spend all this time trying to stuff it and hide it and forget about it and and instead what we want them to do is get help and it has to be good competent help but to get help um the quicker the the quicker the better but it's never too late well you know i always used to tell myself i was okay and, and i think i was like a lot of folks in this industry where you know i don't know what you call it i call it compartmentalization but you know we're good at running through those calls or events and putting them behind us and kind of locking them away and one of the ways I characterize that you know for myself is it's kind of like locking away a 50 gallon barrel full of nuclear waste you know you can seal it up in a barrel and you can dump it and surround it by concrete and bury it but eventually it's going to leach out and I think that's what I found for myself where I told myself I was okay and a lot of people say, no, I'm okay, because, you know, I, I wasn't showing any signs or symptoms right now. But mm-hmm. the further I got down the road, these things started to leak out. I started having these triggers and things that I didn't really understand and correlate with something that happened years ago. Right. Is, is that right. something that you find? Absolutely. And, you know, at the time you are okay, and you just kind of lock it away and you brush it off and you keep going. And there's new calls and new 
distractions and new shifts and and all those things are are good distractions when when you lock it away but but usually what happens is if your brain hasn't processed it like it really needs to it does come back at some point and so you may lock away multiple events over the course of years and then suddenly suddenly when you have basically reached your your limit and it's usually when your resilience is an, is at an all-time low um, it just comes back. And, and so that's that cumulative stress that we're looking at. And then all of a sudden it impacts you. I will say also, though, one of the things that contributes to that is as we get older, you know, we get more mature, we have more compassion, we see the bigger picture. And some of the calls that we sort of lock away when we're young, later on, you know, you, you really realize the, the implications of of just the tragedy or, or how sad that call was for that family that, that you worked with or that you saw, you know, as bystanders. And then all of a sudden it just hits you because you just have more wisdom. I always say that wisdom causes gray hair because man, it, it is tough, but I'll tell you what the wisdom, when you can heal from your trauma, the wisdom leads you to being a much, much better first responder than you ever were before, because you can look at people and you can, provide them with the the kindness and the compassion and the stabilization of their crisis that they need at the time. And, and your skill level, you know, is consistent with all the years of experience you have. You just become such an amazing provider, but it's really, really important that everybody has an outlet so they can keep all of that in check and, and keep it all, you know, in that, in that high resilience sort of mode. That makes sense. You know, I want to talk in a minute, you know, a little bit about what agencies can do to take a, a better care of their employees. But before we touch on that, how about general public friends and families of these folks who are in this industry that, you know, have to live with them every day? So as a provider, I may not know I'm, I'm in uh, distress, but definitely my wife would know, you know, she'd see the change in me or, or my children. So how about for those guys, what can they look out for and do? I think that the biggest thing to look out for is is changes in mood and behavior, you know, and and to have those conversations. Every couple has their sort of their MO in terms of how much they talk about work or communicate about things that happened at work. And what I would encourage every couple to do is figure out what what your MO is and and then sort of know your your sort of baseline level of how you guys interact and how the, the level of discussion you have about work. And then when it changes, it's okay to say, hey, you know, are you good? Because all of a sudden, like I'm noticing that that this is different or you're more withdrawn or you're, you know, you're you're snapping a lot more. And so so tell me, you know, have you had a rough couple of shifts or or have you had any tough calls lately? And I think that, you know, every couple wants to work towards some some semblance of harmony. I think that the spouses and loved ones of first responders, they have if they are not first responders themselves, they have the extra, the sort of task of, of getting used to what it's like for their first responder at work, what it's like to have these constant fight or flight, you know, responses, what it's like to have that parasympathetic nervous system backlash at the end of the shift. And just to kind of figure all of that out. I do, I do strongly, strongly encourage uh, family briefs tell you what, every time I do a family brief, the family members are like, oh my gosh, that's exactly what happens in our house. And now we know why. And now we know what to do different. And so I think that that educating family members on first responder stress and, and shift work and you know all the adrenaline and cortisol and what it does to their brains and bodies is really important because then it all just, it just makes sense. 
Yeah, well, that that does make sense. And, you know, for as for myself, you know, you talked about kind of wisdom as we age. And, and one of the things that I think really taught me to, to do things different was learning how to be humble. Uh, you know, I'm a Marine Corps veteran and, and many years in, in the industry and, and just kind of a, a hard-headed male anyway. And so I think it was even harder for me to admit that I needed help. And so, you know, I, I think for the the caregivers for the folks that maybe learn how to be humble and realize that you don't have to do it all on your own and, and that it's okay to reach out for help. Talk to your friends and family, you know, about what you're going through. I, I think that's so important. I totally agree. You know, if you look at all of the training, police, fire, EMS, military, right? It's all about, about control. Here's what you do. Here's how you take control. Here's how you stay in control. You're in charge, take charge, get the job done. And then nobody ever talks to you, to anybody really, about what it's like to go through an experience where you can't change the outcome, where you feel that the awful word is helplessness. Like, who wants to feel that? But so often with trauma, what people express when we treat their traumas is the feeling of helplessness. And uh, and that's that's pretty overwhelming. And so I, I think that while we can't, we know we can't, we're not Superman, we can't change the world, we can't change the outcome, we can't prevent things from happening. Um, I think the the normalization of that is very, very important. I've talked to a lot of paramedics about the fact that, you know what, maybe your job for this patient was not to save their life because obviously you couldn't at, on this particular event. Maybe your job was to be there so they didn't die alone. And I've told a lot of veterans that too. Maybe your job that day, you know, as a corpsman, as a medic, you couldn't save that Marine or that soldier, but you know what? They didn't die alone. You well, know, that, they were right there with them. That's a cool perspective. Thanks for sharing that. Wow. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to say on the show here that throughout my experience in this industry, I have a huge respect for the women in this industry. They're a different breed. They are, they are tough and and I, I want to thank you women. I know you've you've had a tough walk, but I, I want to ask you, Dr. Glenn, do you do you see a difference in how the the men and women process these things in our industry? I, I see a difference in terms of um, women actually process trauma differently. So clinically, yes, from that st standpoint, there is there are some dis distinct differences in how women process trauma. And in in terms of dealing with the events, you're right. The women have to be tougher, stronger, faster. They, you know, the expectation is that they can't make it or they can't cut it in this field a lot of times. And so they have to prove that they can. Um, it does make asking for help very tough because, you know, when you've been through an academy and you're on the streets um, and you have, you're constantly proving yourself, it's, it's tough to ask for help. I, I know when I was um, contracting with the Marine Corps, I had, you know, I was doing lots and lots of pre-deployment briefs when we were at war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the guys would come up and talk to me after the brief and ask questions. The females would avoid me until I got in the ladies' room. And then we would talk. It was amazing. Wow. So there is, there is, a, yeah, there's an additional pressure there. And so we'd have lengthy conversations in the ladies' room. But yeah, and then we'd head back out and they wouldn't even look at me. Like they would not even give me eye contact after after our discussion because the the pressure if they approach me they look weak meanwhile the guys are you know there's 10 of them waiting to talk to me and it's not a big deal but for the women it was 
It's very different. Well, for the ladies out there in this industry, I have to tell you, you've more than earned the respect of your male peers. So uh, I would I would encourage you to speak up and, and reach out for help. And, and I think probably there's more men that can learn from you than, than you realize. So thank you, ladies, for what you do in this industry. So we've talked a little bit about signs and symptoms and what to do and, and that. And I think here's where I got it wrong the most was as a uh, EMS director and, and having employees that were going through just a variety of problems. And, you know, it ended up they they end up coming to me for disciplinary action. And, you know, had I been more well-informed at the time and, and maybe we had a, a bit better program, uh, maybe better peer support, um, we, we could have averted some of the kind of human resource disciplinary issues. What can agencies do better and and what do they need to do to get this right and and help their employees and help get these careers back on track and and help these folks i think that the the biggest thing is to have really competent resources in place um you know i've i've spent my career sort of training and recruiting good clinicians good therapists to to work with first responders it is it's hard to find that not many not many therapists want to work with first responders I think cultivating good resources in your area, getting local therapists to start to ride along and, you know, have dinner at the fire station and just do those things is is a good way to have resources in place. The the part B of it is how you respond to people's, you know, the events, the issues, the problems that come up. You know, so often and I and my my most recent book, uh, which is called Code Four, um, the the thing I challenged leadership to do at the end of the book is to change the conversation because what happens so often is when an employee is struggling and their performance has declined, we, everybody in the history of doing this job knows that the tendency has been to look at that person and say, wow, you know what, they've changed. They're, they're a sandbagger now. They're a slacker. They're so different. They're, you know, they're a problem child. And everybody labels that person with whatever they decide they are. And instead, I firmly believe we could be so much more productive if we would pause and say, hey, tell me what happened. Tell me what has changed. Why is this different now? And, you know, it's amazing because probably you and you've had this experience. My guess is you've had this experience is so many people get terminated and then later on, the chief or the director or whoever the leadership is, they find out that there were all of these things going on in this person's life, maybe personal, maybe professional, maybe health. And, and you know, I've, I've talked to a couple of chiefs who've said, oh, my gosh, if I had known, we could have helped this person. And it's like, but did you ask? Right. Because a lot of times, you know, people are afraid to be forthcoming with whatever their, their problems are, whether it's health or personal or family or whatever. And so. Nobody ever asks, hey, what's different? What changed for you? And when you ask that question, I mean, you'll be amazed at what you get. And there's this this layer upon layer upon layer of thing that could be addressed versus just terminating an employee and starting all over again. No, no, I absolutely have experienced that. And I think, you know, for me that I would ask 
And sometimes I would open Pandora's box and, you know, it turns out that a lot of the things they were talking about their family life was a mess and they, you know, had a lot of other symptoms that now I see were that they were in distress from the job. And and I didn't, I didn't fully understand it then. Or um, there was a certain amount of folks who would not be very forthcoming, you know, and, and, you know, I wanted to reach out and help or, or get them into a program. Now, my hands were tied a little bit um, because of the system that I worked in. But, um, but nevertheless, if someone would have come to me early on, in particular, I would have, you know, gone out of my way to try to get them the help they needed. Um, yeah. I, I think they both share responsibilities there. If you if you are in distress, you guys need help. You know, please please advise your supervisor. Let people know. Talk about it. You know, breaking the stigma works on on both ends. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, l- l- let me ask you. You're talking directly you know, to our listeners. You know, and and we're we're kind of moving through some of these things pretty quick. Which, by the way, I I hope you'll come back in the future for a part two. So what would you say to our listeners that are, you know, even if they're not in this industry, you know, we have a lot of military veterans and folks listening to the program who have gone through their their own adversities in life, whether they are in um, the public safety industry or, you know, have been in the military or not. There's just a lot of people out there that, you know, are, are hurt and damaged. What would you say to them? I would say that it is very, very hard to ask for help. And sometimes when you do ask for help, it's it's like a cumbersome project to find the right person, but to not give up. I think that everybody at some point in their life is going to need some help, and that's called normal. And when you when you are struggling and you reach out to others and the others you reach out to are not the right answer, just to keep looking because there's, we have, especially when it comes to trauma, we have such great treatments now. We have phenomenal treatments that are very, very fast and effective. And so I would say, don't give up. Just keep finding that right person. And when you find that right person, I always <laughs> liken it to my analogy is that it's like, it's like shopping for a new car. You have to test drive a few. So it is labor intensive, but when you find that right person and your instinct tells you that you can open up to this person and that they, in fact, know what they're doing based on, you know, their credibility and their history and, you know, what, what their, what their experience is, then, then it'll, it'll be golden, but you, you have to find, you have to find that person, but don't give up. It's, uh, it's hard to see these suicide rates, you know, in veterans and first responders, it just kills me because, there's so much help to be had, and there's such effective techniques to combat PTSD. You, you talked about some of these amazing um, new treatments and therapies, and, and I think it's, it's important to hear you say that because I know so many people that don't re- seek help because they don't want to be medicated. I see a lot of veterans that are friends of mine. I have, I have a ministry working with folks recovering from alcohol and substance abuse and and so many of them won't seek treatment options because they feel like medication is the only cure, the only treatment, and they, they don't want that. So are there other options? Absolutely. You know, actually, was, I consider medication the last stop. Like, that's when nothing else is working and we just really have to stabilize somebody. Uh, that's when the medication comes in. And the medication is going to... It's going to calm some symptoms down, but we, in the counseling process, we get to the root of the problem. 
My favorite, favorite, favorite technique um, is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, EMDR. And EMDR is a process that actually triggers your frontal lobe of your brain to finally, for the first time ever since the trauma was introduced to you in your life, it triggers that frontal lobe to open the synapses and basically process and download the images that are stuck in your frontal lobe and, and basically downloads them to your long-term memory. The thing about trauma is what you see here, taste, touch, and smell gets stuck in your frontal lobe, and that's why it triggers you all the time. Over time, it becomes PTSD. Well, what EMDR does is it actually gets your frontal lobe to move those images to your long-term memory. Now, I would say this. With severe cases of PTSD, you need to find somebody who's been doing EMDR for a long time and who's very skilled at it. Um, you know, a newer person may not be may not be ready for that. And so it's important to find someone with a lot of experience. But that's been my thing for years. I'll, I'll tell you a recent, a recent victory. I was teaching at a fire academy and one of the firefighters after it was actually the day after I taught them, they were doing confined space activities and he, he pretty much lost it. He, he, he's pretty sure it was a panic attack. So the instructors called me and they said, Hey, this happened, you know, can, can you fix this? So I came back, turns out he was, he was a veteran um, and he was in a position where he was in a culvert and uh, an IED blew up and he was trapped under rubble and, you know, and road and, you know, rocks and bricks and all that stuff was basically on top of him. And it took uh, his unit about two hours to dig him out and he was trapped and he thought he was going to die. So when he went to do this confined space, you know, event in his academy, of course, he had this panic response. So I went out to the academy and I did EMDR on him and uh, he processed through a lot of military trauma, a lot, a lot of trauma. And as soon as we were done, he basically all of those images, sight, smell, sounds were fading to his long term memory. He was experiencing this relief immediately. So what do we do? We went out to the training grounds. He suited up, you know, full respirator, everything in bunker gear. And he just climbed on through those confined space uh, obstacles like it was no big deal and got his life back. Like, that's how well we can fix this. It's not simple for everybody, but man, oh, man, what a great technique this is. Um, I'll tell you, my first, the first actual person I did it on outside of my training, my first day of training was the day of the Murrah bombing in Oklahoma City. And two weeks later, I'm sitting across from an Oklahoma City firefighter, and he was not okay. And he proceeded to tell me his story. And I said, you know, there's this brand new technique because it was brand new back then. And I explained what it did. And he's like, I'll do anything. And I watched this transformation. I followed him through his whole career because he was my first one. And he retired as battalion chief a few years ago with no problems, no symptoms, nothing. So we we have this down. And we don't we don't necessarily need to go that medication route, right? If If things in your limbic system are massively under control, we might try a course of six months of, of a mild medication to get it to calm down, to help the therapy along. But then we want to pull you off those meds to see if, if you can do it without it. I mean, this is this is the last stop. And unfortunately, with everything that's happened, you know, with, with especially with our veterans, of course, no one wants to be medicated. I wouldn't either. I wouldn't take it either. Right, right. Well, that's amazing. Um, matter of fact, I, I watched your your uh, video on your website and I have a friend right now that's going through a hard time. He's retired military helicopter pilot. And I sent that to him and he is said, I am game. He, he oh, was good. really excited because he hadn't heard about this therapy. Uh -huh. And so I think it's amazing. 
That's fantastic. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Anything that helps. Right. Yeah. So as we kind of wrap up, um, I, I like to leave our listeners with, you know, just kind of, if you had, I know you talked to them, you know, you've covered a lot of ground in a short period of time. If you had kind of one thing that you could leave our listeners to that could really improve the quality of their life to help them through what, whatever they might be going through right now, what would that be? I think the the biggest thing is when you're facing adversity is to take it one step at a time. And, you know, sometimes change seems so hard and we get really discouraged. And I think that what we do is we, we get up and we put one foot in front of the other. And sometimes we take a big, deep breath and we look at the big picture. I always tell people to go back to the basics of self-care, your hydration, nutrition, rest, and exercise. But when I say that, I also caveat it with this. Don't do like a New Year's resolution. Well, I need to get into shape because nobody knows what that means, right? right? What I tell people is if you have quit exercising and you're not or you're not on some sort of exercise regimen, I want you to move your body. Do what you love. Put one foot in front of the other. And so if you love walking your dog, then that's step one is you walk your dog. Step one is not joining the gym because that's a setup for failure just move your body, ease into things. If you're changing your diet, you know, take two bites of what you know you should eat off your plate and add two bites of what you know you should eat and, and gradually ease into it, right? Uh, that's, that's the thing is that somehow human beings expect themselves to be light switches, but we really aren't light switches. We, we change gradually. And so don't get discouraged. You know, reach out for help, find good resources there's there's so much help to be had. There's so many people who want to help and to do the best you can each day. And when you have a bad day, it, you know, it's OK. Tomorrow's a new day. You know, practice the self-care, get rest, you know, take a night, go to bed early and and just take take the breaks that you need along the way to really restore your resilience. Well, thank you so much for that. I appreciate that. That's that's really great advice. Um, so would you like to share with our listeners, uh, you've written books, you've got some videos and for leaders, uh, out there that may want to uh, contact you and, and find out how they can help their employees or individuals that are seeking treatment, how they can reach you. Sure. The best way is my website, which is www.taniagleenn.com. So it's tanyaglenn.com. Um, there's a link to the documentary. There's um, it, it showcases the the books I wrote and uh, and gives you all the contact information uh, to reach the practice. It's it's all right there, and we welcome we welcome any questions or or any concerns that that people need to to share. Awesome. So what's next? You've got all these books and and videos. Are you working on anything now? You know, <laughs> I don't know yet. It <laughs> usually what happens is it comes to me like the the third book that I wrote, the most recent one that came out in March, um, last December. I landed on the runway in Phoenix. It wasn't necessarily a hard landing. I was on a flight and I landed in Phoenix, and the the thought popped in my head, oh, this is what I need to do next. So I actually I started writing it December twelfth and finished it January fourth because I'm the kind of person like wow. once I start. That I got to I gotta finish it. That's nuts because I'm working on a book right now and I've got all kinds of distractions. There's no I know, I know, I know. I just I, once I start, I got to get it done. So I am contemplating, um, and maybe when I land on some runway this fall, it'll hit me that this is what I need to do or I need to do something else. I am contemplating a book for the family members of first responders. Awesome. Uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> okay. All right. 
Well, Dr. Glenn, I thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm honored to, to host you, and I, I look forward to part two in the future. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be here, and, and I want to thank your listeners, too, for, for giving me the opportunity to, to share the word. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, and, and again, uh, for you listeners out there, mine Hosh's fans, I hope you'll you'll listen to what she says. And more important than listening, I think, is to, to put these things into action, to open up and, and allow yourself the help that you need to heal. Guys, thanks for tuning in today. I look forward to bringing you many more great episodes. If you have a compelling story about your journey through adversity that you'd like to share, please email me at themindhostage at gmail.com. Guys, have an awesome day.